All right. Um, we are back again for episode nine or eight. Episode a certain number of Mod Nerdery. Uh, yeah, episode where where previous episode number equals N, you are here for episode N plus one. Exactly. Yeah, which I, I suppose probably is the uh, origin of the name for the Brooklyn Literary Publication. And plus like one. safe bet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, as always, I'm Mod Nerdery. I'm, uh, you know, Peter Marino. And I'm Rob Ames. Um, so today is uh, March the 11th. Indeed. In 2018. And for the first time in the uh, taping, oh, taping, you know, one of those uh, technological anachronisms. But anyway, the taping of Mod Nerdery, it's not dark because what's today? Uh, the time when you lose an hour of sleep. Yeah, and that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I legit don't even remember what that's called anymore. The return to standard time? The end of daylight savings time? At the beginning of daylight savings time. There it, it is. is. It is now EDT. It's no longer EST. It's so stupid. What? I don't see what the... Oh, well, what? Whatever. Uh, so we're stuck with it. But um, So we've got uh, some Northeast Asia and some urbanism for you today, I guess, or for us, and for however many of you choose to join us at whatever time you choose to join us. Yeah, maybe it'll be light, maybe it'll be dark. Uh, yeah, but I I was I was awake for the actual switch between the times last night. Oh, which is, it's like 2 a.m. becomes 3 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I was coming back from being out, so I, 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 had, I had consumed some beverages, mm-hmm. and I was like, wait, am I... I don't think I was really going that hard. Did I? Did I just miss an hour? And then I was just like, "Oh no, it's, it's, it's the new time." Yep. Better, better reset the microwave. Yep. Yeah. I I woke up this morning and I thought, "Wow, it feels really early." And I looked at my phone and it was ten minutes to seven. I thought, "Oh yeah, that's right." Yep. Although, uh, to, to many of you out there, of course, you know, uh, we, we don't know what kind of work you do. Maybe 10 to 7 is a totally normal time to get up rather than uh, really early, but, or, or, or 10 to 6 or whatever it be. But in any event... Um, <laughs> yeah, perhaps, perhaps you live much more virtuous lifestyles than us dissolute academics. Or, or, or uh, are, are much uh, harder laborers than, than we are, in which case, uh, more power to you and uh, victory for the proletariat in, yes. in our time. Yeah. Yeah. Socialism in our time, uh, all power to the workers... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Um, but uh, speaking of communists, um, let's. Uh, what about Beijing? So something big. Well, it, it, it started happening a few weeks ago, and really in more substantial terms, it started happening years ago. But um, the sort of actual final legal formalization of it happened uh, just earlier today in Beijing. And what was it? The extension of Xi Jinping's term limit. Well, uh, more, the, the more change than just in term limits. Yeah, the, 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 the change the, in the whole term limit situation. Yeah, um, within the CCP. Yeah, or well, now to to be clear, because because this is actually the, the the point where there's a, a necessary clarification, right? So. What actually happened, so early March every year is the meeting of the National People's Congress, right? The 3,000-odd member, uh, you know, parliament, which is, you know, rubber stamp parliament of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and Xi Jinping, who's been in power since 2012, holds simultaneously three important positions that are the sources of his power. Well, two that are the sources of his power and one that's sort of the office through which it's exercised. He's simultaneously the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, the chairman of the Central Military Commission of the People's Liberation Army, and the president of the People's Republic of China. Right. And he's been quite insistent, or at least the media outlets surrounding him have been 
quite insistent about calling him president. Yes, yes, because that makes him seem a great deal more normal than calling him uh, chairman or double chairman, which is actually what he is. So what happened was that the National People's Congress, which technically is an organ of the government, not the party, even though all the members of it are simultaneously party members, right? It is, it is a government institution, not a party institution, voted formally to, not, not just to extend, to abolish. Right. Abolish term limits for the presidency. Now, it's possible to say that this is kind of a distinction without a difference because after having his name inserted into the, in, into the, party, the party constitution and his ideology inserted into the party constitution last October, November, he was already going to be the most powerful person in China until he died, whether or not he held the office. But the presidency was the only one of these three offices that had term limits in the first place. Right. So uh, another famous chairman springs to mind. Yeah, that's, that's exactly where, where people's minds are going. So uh, you want to uh, walk us through kind of how that ended maybe in uh, 1976? Mao died? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It, that's that's what it'll take if you know if <laughs> if you abolish term limits. So how? Well, but that's also like a big part of how the, the particular influence vested in the office of chairman is how stuff like the Cultural Revolution happened, where you know um, where really there's a kind of brute force of this particularly like young and restless party rank and file who can for example, turn against official, uh, officials of the government. Uh-huh. Uh, when, when empowered. When empowered to do so by, in the case of the Cultural Revolution, Chairman Mao. Yeah, someone as, as unrestrained as that. You know, Mao was concerned that the revolution wasn't advancing far enough, that they had to, like, jumpstart it. And there's also reason to believe that he was worried about his own political influence fading, yada, yada, yada. We don't have to get back into relitigating the Cultural Revolution. But uh, needless to say, you know, after the chaos of the late 70s and, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping, who was the one who managed to take control of the party and the country after that time, managed to forge a new political consensus among everybody that said, hey, um, maybe we should just sort of turn ourselves into boring technocrats and swap out power every so often, like they do in other governmental systems, and not let any one person take control of this thing because, you know, the thing that the CCP in particular, but Chinese dynasties overall, fear more than anything is chaos. Right. Right. Yeah, this is, I was, uh, in my non-podcasting life, one of the things I do is teach intro to world religions. Mm-hmm. And we were covering China uh, this past week. And yeah, I... Uh, one of the things we were discussing was how there, I mean, especially within the Confucian tradition, uh, so much of it is is really about ways of preserving order and fending off chaos. And that that is seen as, like, the chief goal of any virtue at the end of the day. Yeah. Like and why virtues are virtuous is that they fend off chaos. Yeah. And, and it's... It's important to put into you know a historical and geographical context how particularistic that that is to China. You know, obviously, there, I don't think you'll you'll find a society anywhere in the world that that says chaos is a virtue in itself. You know, because that would be anarchists and nihilists. Although, according to uh, what whoever it is, uh, Shabchak, uh, you know, they're they're only nihilists; they can't hurt you. But uh, um, anyway, uh, 
you know, so chaos is not a virtue unto itself, but the maintenance of order as the highest of the virtues is something particularistic to to the Chinese experience. I mean, you know, in in the Western tradition and in sort of uh, governments de descended from the Islamic tradition, uh, I mean, you the, tell us more, but you know, I'm I'm not uh, aware that you know order in the way that the, the Chinese understand social order is sort of the primary function and purpose of the state. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, in many formations, yeah, there, the, the specific version of, of order that you see in Chinese, Chinese uh, political theory slash, you know, philosophy slash religion, since the three are all very intimately intertwined, uh, is quite unique in saying that order is the chief virtue in and of itself. Um, where, for example, even the doing away with of a dynasty is understood to be a function of a greater order, like dynasties fall when they lose the mandate of heaven. It's yeah, that, that they were unable to maintain order, that right. they were not ruling virtuously, that they were... Now, I mean, of course, you can all, always make the claim that this is just sort of ex post justification for what is, at the end of the day, just a power grab from, you know, one bunch of warlords to another bunch of warlords, and sure, there's some truth to that, but, you know... The but it is telling that every generation of warlords could use the same ex, po ex post facto justification. Exactly, exactly. You know, just the, the, the mere fact of it being ex post uh, is not enough reason to dismiss it. Because, you know, if, if, if you want to go down the route of saying any transfer of power from anyone to anyone else is really just at heart about resources and power and that ideology has nothing to do with it, well, then you're essentially saying they're all equal. And then by that point, you're then getting back to, well, then ideology is the only thing that effectively differentiates them. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that they, they do care about order. And they see then the their particular historiography, and especially the CCP, uh, their own historiography of, of China emphasizes that when China is in disorder, it collapses and fails and falls to the predations of foreign powers, right? And that what, what they understand to be foreign powers includes groups that in the West we generally don't distinguish as foreign, right? That they see their, their ness as Han. Right. Right, so for example, the Manchus were seen as a foreign dynasty. The Manchus Mongolians were seen as foreign exactly. Dynasty. So if if you include both the Mongolians and the Manchus as foreigners, that means that from essentially the 14th century through to 1949, that the Chinese polity, Chinese society, was effectively and virtuously and powerfully ruled by a Han dynasty or an ethnic Han dynasty for only about 230 years which you know it really empowers their narrative of the importance or you know the ethno-nationalist component of it but also the importance of the maintenance of order because look what happens if you don't right yeah yeah and so much of well, obviously so much of um contemporary uh, propaganda, for lack of a better term, that we see coming out of the CCP is not by any meaningful criterion communist at all. No. Uh, and it's much, much more, like, it leans much more heavily on on, on Chinese, uh, specific, you know, Han, I guess, ethno-nationalism. Yeah, that's, um, that's becoming very, very explicit now. Yeah. 
in, in a way that it wasn't even as recently as 10 years ago, like when I, 10, 10 to 15 years ago when, when I lived there, I mean, it was present and you could detect it. You could detect the, the sort of, you know, undercurrent of Han nationalism in most ethnic Han Chinese in the same way that you can detect the current of just sort of, um, you know, tidal volume white supremacy in most sort of, you know, middle-class white Americans scattered almost anywhere in the United States. So it was there, but it wasn't being empowered by a central narrative that stressed it. Right. Which, which all of which gets back to, you know, where we started with this, which is, you know, so Xi Jinping is, or has now already, this is completed, eliminated term limits on the presidency, opening up the very real possibility that he will essentially be president for life, which means it would just tantamount to uh, you know China essentially having an emperor again. Um, in, well, okay, fine. I realize in the academic world that that's actually, there's a lot of argument that goes into that, and it's not as simple as one equals the other. But um, for the sake of you know, our podcast discussion, let's just say that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, my read on it, and, and I'm far from alone in saying this, is that you know, whatever the motivations that he had for doing it, and I'm sure there are many, and we can parse them if we want, but um, he's essentially cashing in on the several decades of stability by doing something potentially very destabilizing. That, you know, we've, we, we've had all of these decades of growth and stability to the point where, it, where the system could even create somebody with enough wealth and power to execute such a political maneuver but that he's now riding on this uh, stuff that's already been there, and he's not deepening it. He's not strengthening it. You, do you know, I, I'm, I've mixed a lot of metaphors there. Do you know what I'm getting at? I, I think so. Um, one thing I'd like to know more about, though, as someone who's not a China specialist, is how particularly he came to occupy this, this, this high station. Um, because the last time I knew, I, I actually knew even a little about China was when I encountered it as an undergrad, which was, again, uh, at least a decade ago now. Yeah. Okay. Well, and obviously, Hu Jintao was, was not seen as not such all. an influential figure. I mean, obviously, he, he mattered at his time, but he sure. was not seen as... I don't think he was seen as emperor potential. Not, not even a little. I mean, if anything, the running complaint about Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao was that they were wooden and boring and uninteresting and uh, didn't do much and just exemplified the collective leadership model. Um, so uh, as, as, as with any rise to power in history, uh, a good deal of it was contingent you know, on, on a number of uh, different uh, sort of power plays that went down. Um, so, and let's start with one of the f very first contingencies that I was present in China for, and I, I, I witnessed, you know, well, to, to the extent of just being a person in, in, in China, not like I witnessed it up close by knowing any of these people. But, uh, so, in 2007, uh, the party secretary of Shanghai, who's one of the most powerful people in the country outside of the national level government, um, got taken down by a corruption scandal. Essentially, you know, same old run-of-the-mill money, mistresses, cars, blah, blah, same old stuff. Chen Liangyu got taken down. And, you know, during the, during the entire time that I'd been living in China, corruption had been something that lots of people complained about. And that, you know, uh, officials would <clears throat> do exactly this stuff, and everybody hated it. And finally, finally, under the last years of the Hu Jintao stuff, Chen Liangyu got taken down. This was a big signal. Who got put in this place? Xi Jinping. 
So Xi Jinping was the replacement party secretary for Chen Liangyu uh, in, in 0607. That positioned him, so he clearly managed to negotiate himself up to a point where he could win that fight, you know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Right. Okay. Then <clears throat> in 2008, uh, 2009, he got uh, promoted further. Then by 2012, as uh, Hu Jintao's term was coming to an end, there was a power struggle again between him and this guy from Chongqing named Bo Xilai. And uh, Bo Xilai was like a hard left Maoist and a big populist, though the one who like reintroduced, like he did the whole like Mao cult of personality thing, but way before Xi. And, you know, they were also both the two of them. And again, this is hilarious that it, this is a communist party that did this, right? They, they were both descendants of, you know, revolutionary cadre friends of Mao. So they were both the red aristocracy. Right, right. There's a dynastic. Yes, nice, nice contradiction in terms there. The red, the communist aristocracy, uh, vying with each other, and in a series of uh, very dynamic spy thriller worthy events, uh, somebody tried to defect to the American embassy and was turned away. And turns out, Boshilai's wife murdered this British guy. And like, actually, that that was not manufactured. All the all of the best independent accounts stipulate that this did actually happen. Um, and that uh, this... Did the British guy have it coming? Um, well, it, it seems like he was essentially like a Paul Manafort-esque kind of guy, but instead of working for a head of state, he was working for a, uh, a party official at a, you know, a, a, a province level. Sounds like a soft yes. Mm-hmm. Probably. Or if, if he didn't have it coming, exactly. I'm not sure that anybody morally deserves to be murdered for, for just being that kind of a level of a jerk. But he sure, was certainly, sure. he was swimming with the sharks, right? to be sure. Anyway, um, so all of that created the space for um, Xi Jinping to win the leadership fight and got Boisilai arrested and tried by the party. Not by the state, he was tried by the party for crimes against the party, for corruption and things like this. And Boisilai went to jail. Nice he only went to jail, I guess. Yeah, they've, they've stopped executing people, although, well, the, the party has stopped executing top-level people. Right, that, okay. that, important that, clarification. Yeah, yeah, China still executes quite a number of people. Um, but, so, by 2012, uh, Xi Jinping had managed to eliminate enough political enemies to get himself into the, the highest office, the, the chairmanship of the party. Uh, he also shrunk the committee that manages things, the, the standing committee, the Politburo, from nine to seven, and he also changed the makeup. Under Hu Jintao, when it was nine, there were five members of his clique and four members of the opposing one. When she took over and shrunk it to seven, it was six to one. How did he accomplish that? Uh, this is a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that it's not like actually known who bought off whom. Um, there was another... So um, some kind of House of Cards shit, we don't know the details. Yeah, there, there are some things that bubble to the surface, like the Boshilai instance was one. There was another instance with a guy named Ling Jihua, who was essentially the chief of staff to Hu Jintao, whose um, 20-year-old son died in a Ferrari car crash with two naked girls. And that not a bad way to go, <laughs> but uh, in the capital, wow. So um, it managed to uh, you know confirm uh, the narratives about. Yeah, I mean, it, it plays into all the stereotypes about the children of of party officials, uh-huh. and and helped helped him make his case. So I mean, my guess is that that stuff was essentially just icing on the cake 
you know, because you don't get to that level of power without making really, really big moves behind the scenes, and I can't imagine it would have all turned on such chance events. But in any event, by 2012, he'd done that, and then he spent most of his first five years consolidating power. He then went after Zhou Yongkang, who was the head of the domestic security services, you know, like the uh, secret police, yeah. and, you know, the, the Chinese Stasi, essentially, right? Yeah. The, and the, the, the paramilitary police and all them. He was running, essentially, his own fiefdom. So he took down Zhou Yongkang, and then... Again, this might just be, like, one of those situations where we only know... <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, we, only know that, we only know that something happened behind the scenes, but I imagine that the internal security services might have been quite capable of fending off fending off intrusions from someone who has who doesn't have immediate command of their own um, their own you know military slash intelligence apparatus that could yep. or at least the same kind of apparatus that would be competitive with the actual internal security services. Yep. Well, I mean, that, that's another thing that, that he did in his first term is that he spent a lot of time clearing out the top generals and replacing top generals. I mean, this is all very, you know, textbook dictatory stuff. Uh, it's just like, unlike Stalin, he didn't have them all executed. He just had them all, like, quietly retired. Right. Right? And then he held a massive military parade in 2015. And then he reorganized the military districts and put everybody, all his new people, in charge of the new military districts. And, you know, it, it should be noted, as I think we pointed out more than once on this podcast, in China, the army is not responsible to the country. The army is responsible to the party. The army belongs to the party. Right. Right? So, yeah. So he spent his first chunk of time making ge generals relationships. Also, his father was big, revolutionary, big deal. And there's, you know, uh, some hereditary uh, loyalty that goes along with that. Uh, and then, so he managed to push out Zhou Hongkong and blah, 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 several years. And by 2017, clearly, he had pushed out enough people that had uh, made enough people happy enough with what he was doing. And the economy in China was still growing pretty well. That uh, they and it and it should be noted that the um, the financial crisis in the U.S. and Europe played very very much into their hands. That it confirmed to them that their model of economics was superior, and they had nothing more to learn from the West. So right. so uh, she as a kind of an avatar of a more both ethno nationalist but also ideologically nationalist uh, muscular Chineseness was the right person at the right time. You know, and but here we, you know, in, in in this story, there's all of the components of what is always taught. In, you know, there's the the contingency part, right? Just like random things that happen that he was able to take advantage of, being the right man in the right place at the right time, being a, a smooth operator, and uh, a little bit of luck. Yeah. Now, what is his? Um family situation. Does does he have any children who could perhaps end up in their own Ferrari crashes? He has a daughter, Si Mingzi, who studied at Harvard, who, uh, under an assumed name, uh, and well, she was there while you were there. Who knows? She might have been in one of your classes. Um, she could would be. not have been there as Si Mingzi. She would have had who knows what name, but uh, she, was, uh, she studied at Harvard and just recently went back to China. Oh, okay. Um, 
presumably she is the uh, most eligible bachelorette in the country, you know, the uh, the uh, imperial princess, as it were. Yeah. Um, but she's essentially never photographed and not talked about and kept very much under lock and key, as, as an imperial princess would be, one might think. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But... Uh, no rumblings of no rumblings of potentially embarrassing habits is is, is the is what I'm getting at. No, not I mean, if if Xi Jinping himself is monstrously corrupt. I mean, at, at this point though, I mean, if you're the emperor, how do you, how how can you be corrupt and the emperor at the same time? If it's all yours to begin with, right? If you take more wealth, wasn't it kind of you know? If, if you're not making any pretense to being the custodian of it for somebody else. Right. Well, and this might be part of the transition, right? That all of a sudden you have a figure who who gets to say what's good and bad rather than who gets to be a figure that's prominent because they do what's good. Exactly. Although, I mean, like, he doesn't have uh, publicly extravagant tastes. Um, okay. Um, so, anyway, yeah, that that's now there. And uh, as I've been saying for a number of years, uh, she is the Chinese Putin. I mean, and really, because of the power differential, it really should be Putin is the Chinese Xi, but Putin looms a lot larger in the Western imagination. So at that's, least at the moment, because yeah. Trump, Russia. He also has an easier name to say for most English speakers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Vladimir well, not Putin. Not by much. <laughs> not, I mean, just in terms of like relative ease with which Americans pr can pronounce foreign languages. Chinese and Russian are both up there in terms of stuff that we just really struggle to pull off. Yeah, although... Um, then again, we, we can't even get Spanish right, so... Yeah, so maybe, maybe give us a break. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill, hyper-colonialist that he was, said, um, every man has the right to pronounce foreign words as he sees fit. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm that, sure that that was high on the list of priorities of all the Bengalis who starved under his rule. Yep. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks, Winsty. But anyway, um, sticking around in um, dynastic heirs in North Korea, in, uh, you know, Northeast Asian uh, communist states, what else do we have for us? Uh, the possibility of a Trump-Kim summit. Mm-hmm. So uh, walk us through <laughs> what, what, what has happened there so far. So as far as I understand it, and I have not gone beyond the headlines myself, um, there was a North-South meeting uh, at which the North floated to the South the idea of a face-to-face -face between Kim and Trump. Uh -huh. And when this idea first reached Trump, he was very enthusiastically on board. Deal maker that he is. Yeah, I said, tell them yes. Tell them yes. This, perhaps he did not realize, conflicts with decades of established U.S. policy, which is to say, we will have no unconditional meetings with North Korea. All, our willing, all diplomatic engagements with North Korea have historically been contingent upon them sort of committing to denuclearization and, like, in principle, renouncing the idea of having a nuclear weapon. Yeah, and, and at the very least are at the end of talks such that, you know, the, the meeting itself is a kind of reward. Right. Right? That, 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 that's how we've positioned it. Right? And but all of a sudden it seemed to... Or all of a sudden Trump made it look like this would just be a meeting between two equals without any of those conditions. Yep. 
and it's been it's been floated by a number of people who are far more knowledgeable about the North Korea issue than 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 I am, that it was not made clear to Donnie that the offer to meet has been made to every American president since North Korea has been around, since, since, since the war ended. Well, the world doesn't exist when he's asleep, you know? So <laughs> I guess that's kind of understandable. I suppose, yeah. And he just he didn't know. And, and also, you can throw him into a blind panic by covering your eyes in front of him. <laughs> and uh, when, when your president lacks object permanence, you're... Uh, <laughs> you're 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 kind of in a difficult position, but um, yeah. To to quote uh, again to to refer to those same people I was referring to just a moment ago, who are uh, uh, Jeff Jeff Lewis of the Arms Control Wonk podcast. You know, he pointed out that you know if you go to meet the North Koreans, whatever North Korea it is that you meet, that's the one you've bought. That you know that's that's the one you're reifying. You know, to to make it a little more academic, right? Yeah. That that's the one that's legit. If if that's the one that that made it to the point where they're willing to meet. That's it. That's your North Korea. You're, you're never getting another one unless they themselves decide to change it, and at that point, they're not asking you anymore. Right. And this, I think, speaks to, um, I think, one, it, it makes perfect sense that Trump would do this yeah. just as part of his you know, attempt to brand himself as dealmaker-in-chief, mm-hmm. um, his belief that he can he can get party war, he can get conflicting parties to sit down and by virtue of his deal making genius get them stipulated alleged genius yeah uh, genius not yet in evidence <laughs> uh, get them to come to uh, you know a new winning deal so I mean it would make perfect sense if I were North Korea and basically looking for this recognition mm-hmm. yeah to just be like we would love to talk. Because of course he would think it's all because of him. Yeah. It must be because he's in charge that they want to talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that like this is like his new who's his newest big win opportunity as a deal maker, right? He yeah. would do the impossible. Yeah. He would he would bring peace between North and South Korea, yep. neglect like neglecting every other thing that is the real issue. Exactly. You know, in the he, process. He, to the, uh, I mean, I don't even think that he, like pretty much every other president who's ever been president, you know, uh, the previous presidents care a lot about what previous presidents had done before them, and they care about modeling themselves on or avoiding the mistakes of one or the other. Yeah, I, I, so. Yeah, I, I think like all, uh, to the extent that he thinks about that at all, he sort of thinks like, well, I'm, I, I don't like what Obama did, and a few of those other things I like, but you know, um, if, well, it had nothing to do with what Obama. No, 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 no. But, but I mean, like to the to the extent that you could, under other circumstances, suggest that maybe he thought like, oh, it's going to be Nixon goes to China, but it's going to be Trump goes to Pyongyang kind of thing. Except I don't think he thinks about it in those terms. No. No. It, it, but you know, and again, I'm I'm relying here on the work of other people, so I, I don't want to because as you know, you dear audience know, I am not a North Korea specialist, but I do know Northeast Asia moderately well. Well, you're certainly a China specialist. Yeah. Uh, and one of the, the things that was pointed out is that at the moment, there really isn't especially much to negotiate because North Korea is not about to denuclearize, and it's not like we have any other specific things to, to go for. So it was, again, it was, it was, it was discussed. Uh, you know, it's like, if this thing goes ahead, like, what do you ask for? What are you there to talk about? And it's like... Well, the, and I don't think... I, I honestly don't think Trump was conceiving of it in those terms. No, I'm, he was I'm certain he it, wasn't. I, I think he was conceiving of it as an opportunity to receive praise. Exactly. But the thing is, if you go into one of these meetings and you don't actually ask for anything, they win. 
right? If, if all you do is go and recognize them and they throw you a big party, they're the ones who come out on the top, not you. So you have to ask for something. Right. Right. And what they thought of, because like denuclearization is not going to happen, right? That the Kims are not ready to do that. And they, and, and this was actually innovative insofar as it's something that I've never heard brought up before as something actually to discuss because there were so many other things. But he's like, well, you know, if we're locked into this insane summit, we got to come up with something to talk about. And he's like, just go for a peace treaty. That's it. Like, because all we have is an armistice right now, technically. Yeah. The, uh, by the letter of the law, the Korean War is still going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's like, yeah, just fuck it, just go for a peace treaty. I mean, like that, that, that that's the only thing at this point that you could legitimately potentially get and that the Kims might be willing to give. And and, and then and then he thought further about it and he thought, well, you know, it's like, well, maybe, you know, it's 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 just it's a strategy we've never considered. Ma- maximum appeasement. Just give the North Koreans everything they asked for, and maybe then they'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, like, if you... you say please. Yeah, just, just you know, if you're going to go whole hog, just, like, think of what a strategy of maximum appeasement would look like and do it. Reunification of the peninsula under the rule of the north. That's a little bit more maximal than, than, than they were thinking, but, yeah. yeah um, but no, I mean, like, just, just spitballing here. That, that is what comes to mind when I think maximum appeasement. Yeah, it's like, why don't you have the whole thing? But but yeah, peace treaty is just like that would be the one possible thing that could be actually negotiated. I mean, everything else would just be like minor stuff on the side. But if you're going to get both Trump and Kim, you know, you better be negotiating something substantive. And peace treaty could be it. At the moment, it seems like uh, Washington is trying to back away from what they said originally. And maybe it's not going to happen and all kinds of other stuff, which yeah. makes sense. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Trump had Trump eventually had to issue an additional statement saying that he would, in fact, only meet with them under certain conditions. Exactly, which he didn't know when he said it the first time, which is why several times it's baffled so many people that you know he's agreed to do these like live congressional negotiations where people propose things that. You know, the Republicans have repeatedly said they don't want, but it's phrased in a way that he doesn't recognize, and he says, oh, yeah, that's great, let's do it. And Yeah, yeah, well, and... Also, I must say, a bilateral meeting between Trump and Kim, especially in the absence of any of their high-ranking official, like high-ranking staff, any of their support officials would be hilarious because it would just be two idiot man-children completely unqualified for their respective roles. Like, I don't know, fighting over blocks? Who knows? I mean, if it's just the two of them and two interpreters, because who knows how good Kim's English is? I mean, who knows how good Donnie's English is, but it's a separate question. Um, Reliably better than Donnie's Korean. Yes. (laughs) Um, But, yeah. Uh, it's, and the, the, the other difficulty, of course, is where such a meeting would take place, right? Pyongyang, the, the optics are terrible, and the security is terrible, because the U.S. Secret Service couldn't do the things that it wants to do in a place where they usually have meetings, you know, regardless of the individual, just as a matter of protecting the office per se, right? right? Pyongyang is terrible. Um, no one wants to meet in Japan. The, uh, they certainly don't want to meet in Seoul. Um, China might not prefer to be particularly helpful, uh, and, where did, and it should be pointed out, Kim Jong-un has not left the country since he assumed office. Yeah, well, I, 
it seems believable to me that he is in fact a prisoner in his own home. More or less. Or at least in his own city. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean that literally. But just, like, that he more or less is in his office and alive and safe at the pleasure of his top generals. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, his father rarely left the country. I mean, I think he left the country on, like, three official, four official visits in his entire several decades in office. But, hell, you know what? Why not just meet in Taipei? And while we're bucking, you know, every diplomatic precedent... Also, just, you know, give up the one-China policy. Yeah, just, uh, you know, uh, meet with North Korea, recognize Taiwan, <laughs> all in the same... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kill two birds with one stone. Boom. Done. Or as... Uh, they're, they're, that actually is a Chinese idiom on its own. Yi shi ar niao. Literally, one, one stone, two birds. Nice. Nice. Uh, okay, dear like listeners. golden rule. Yeah, exactly. Translatability. Um, I think we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be right back. All right, uh, so uh, thank you for bearing with us with that, dear listeners. Although, of course, to you at the other end of this recording, that will have seemed like absolutely no time at all. Time flies when it's not being recorded. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so, moving on to our, to our final bit of the week. So, we, you know, we mentioned, as we end up doing every time, as everyone ends up doing every day these days, uh, talking about good old Donnie J., uh, <clears throat> I, full, I, spectrum, full spectrum dominance of the news cycle. Clearly. Yeah, you know, that, that, that is something that he's accomplished more than anyone else that I can recall. But it, it, since Mao, maybe. Or, <laughs> um, but so from that, we're going to maybe do a kind of an artificial pivot back to, well, you know, Donnie's from New York, where we are sitting right now, where we live. And uh, even though in pretty much every meaningful manifestation, he doesn't uh, act in the interests of New York City in particular, or places like New York in general? No. No. He... Well, it's funny because he branded himself as being so, like, perfectly, aggressively New York-y in his cultural disposition early on in his, in his public life. Yeah, like back in the 80s and yeah. 90s uh, and stuff, yeah. Especially more with his brashness than anything else, I suppose. Though, of course, at one point, you know, he was, to, uh, to use Boris Johnson's phrase, apparently, by most accounts, a pretty liberal New Yorker. Yeah, I mean, I gave, I guess in, back in, in the 80s or 90s or whatever, but yeah, I mean, like... Yeah, as much as, like, he kind of embodied that sort of, like, not exactly liberal, but populistically opposed... Uh, that, kind of populist opposition to like certain strands of social conservatism where it's like no you're not committed to gay liberation but frankly you're yeah marry your shoe for all i care that kind of thing. Uh, yeah pr precisely although that that has changed quite a although bit that has certainly I changed i was just reading an interesting piece uh in the atlantic today about how perplexing it is that he is the candidate even more favor faithfully favored by evangelicals than bush too yeah which is I mean, that's a whole other kettle of fish or pot of beans or bag of worms or box of nails or whatever it is you want to get into, whatever strange. Whatever container and object in said <laughs> container. Yeah, that's and, and, uh, neither of us is really uh, in, in a position to, to discuss that at any length uh, here and now. But to the extent that uh, Donnie's from the city and we're in the city and we care about cities, um, you know, one of the 
critical, critical things about cities has always been moving people around in cities. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, the whole deal about a city is that it's got a lot of people. That's why it's a city and not a town. Exactly. High population density. Exactly. And it's tricky to have a lot of people living in the same place, moving around, and making it all work. And it took a long time for cities to figure out how to get it to work. Public transit didn't exist and then had to come into existence. Right. Right? And, you know, public transit then got challenged by the car, you know, about 100 years ago. And... Well, and then, of course, with suburbanization in the, in the American case... Yeah, which, which, which was, we should point out, a series of, the, the result of a series of deliberate policy choices, not, yes. not a natural consequence of industrial democracy. Right, but uh, these specific policy choices, which favored the car, say, uh, led to the specific depopulation of urban centers. Yeah, and, then, you know, and the lowering of the tax base for the city and worse city services for the city, which then led to what was commonly called the crisis of the city in the 60s and 70s, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and throughout that whole period, there were people like Robert Moses in particular, you know, towering figure in New York City, although, you know, he originally dates to the, to the 30s and 40s of the New Deal era where he was responsible for creating some of the first roads and parks and stuff that, that New York City, you know, quite definitively needed. Uh, by, the, by the later part of this period, it came to embody a particularly anti-urban ethos, despite his work allegedly being for the good of the herbs, the metropolis. Right. Right. Well, obviously, and the, 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 other, the other figure who doesn't, doesn't tower as much as she deserves to in our historical memory as Americans and as New Yorkers is Jane Jacobs. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the two of them are the, the perfect antagonists in the the historical story of what happened, specifically with the low, the proposed Lower Manhattan Expressway, right, Lomax, right, right. So uh, Moses had built uh, the or had had caused to be built. I always hate that term that you know so and so built. No, so so and so did not. Ramses didn't build the pyramids. Ramses created the series of commands and policies that organized the money and the scribes and the bureaucrats such that they organized slaves to build the pyramids. Ramses did not build the pyramids. To quote President Obama, you didn't build that. Yeah, exactly. So Moses uh, created the situation to create the Cross Bronx Expressway, which was a civil engineering triumph and a, a, a civic disaster. Right. Right. Because, it, I mean, it just basically did away with people's living space. Yeah. And, you know, unmade neighborhoods. Quite deliberately, and we can get into the extent to which that was sort of uh, explicitly, as opposed to just sort of coincidentally racist. And in the incidents of Moses, I'm not really sure it's necessary to disentangle it to. But to get to, well, okay, <laughs> that does sort of matter when you compare it to what happened at the Lower Manhattan Expressway and the neighborhoods that it ran through. But um, you know, after Cross Bronx Expressway, he proposed the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have cut across um, Canal Street. It, you know, would have cut across from the Bronx, uh, from from Brooklyn, across Lower Manhattan, across the Hudson into Jersey. into Jersey. You know, major multi-lane elevated highway across. You know, it's more or less where Canal Street is. And after, you know, New York City had at that point been through several years, if not decade plus, of a lot of civic destruction, you know, most notably with Penn Station, right? And then uh, Cross Bronx, and then blah, 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 blah. And Jane Jacobs, so take us through what, what Jane Jacobs did in, in uh, response. Well, so, I mean, her whole 
project, which you know resulted in community organizing and stuff, but was basically just like that. In fact, no cities shouldn't be. <laughs> shouldn't be industrially planned by by a certain like um, knighted cast of managers mm-hmm. uh, knighted with the K yeah uh, or be knighted yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but instead should be like actually developed in such a way to you know orient life sort of to the communities, communities that are actually there and to actually, like, foster community and, like, livability for the people that are actually there. Yeah, that, that the city is not a transportation problem to be solved. It's also a place where people live. Yeah, and that it, it should be made livable and that, for example, you know, public housing shouldn't be um, the building equivalent of a series of shelves. It should yeah. actually be oriented in such a way as to, like, foster a life in common for the residents. Yeah, that, 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 that there is a, a civic space worthy of the name that exists independent of calculations as to the ease of moving things from one place to another. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously there's, there are so many projects that are basically designed in such a way to maximize human stackability, in short. Yeah, that's a very clinical way to put it, but sure. But no, and that's just like, Maybe instead they should actually be designed like homes. Yeah, and th- and and that was her argument. Yeah, and that I mean it was an argument that was definitively not part of the elite of uh, urban planning at the time and civic planning. Right. I mean, this was at the same time that Le, Le Corbusier was was framing. Um, you know, like cities within parks within cities. And yeah. Just like, well, and like he he called apartments uh, machines for living in. Yeah. Which I think is like a tellingly industrial way of explaining how how the planning elite understood urban life to to be at the time. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's understandable that that someone of the age of Le Corbusier in the middle of the twentieth century, who would have been what in his seventies or eighties, I, I don't know exactly. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an architectural historian, but you know, I mean, the the first industrial memory. Uh, or the, the first, you know, civic memory of the industrial city was one of people crammed together and everything turned into slums, right? Well, and of course it was, like, slum clearance was the watchword for, for all these neighborhood disruptions. Exactly. Because, you know, that was, that was the, when, when London and New York became London and New York and then Paris and Berlin also joined them, like, that was what happened. First, slums happened. Although they saw slums as a consequence of density, not slums as a consequence of capitalism, but... Right. Uh, well, separate question. Obviously, the solution is central planning to a degree, in that you know you want you want a very well developed plumbing infrastructure, and that can't ju- that can't just happen without some engineer actually being there to be like, no, this is actually where we need to put pipelines. Exactly. But but I would say that you know predominantly they saw the squalor of the cities that that they observed as being created primarily by the consequence of the density itself rather than the various other attendant things that went along with the density and the industrialization and the urbanization at the time. So, you know, to then go in a direction like Le Corbusier went, and it's like, no, sequester people away from each other, create all of this parkland space between them, and, you know, there's a machine for living and a machine for working and a machine for entertainment, and you just move among them. Like, I can see where that came from initially. Yeah. Right? 
But so when, when Jane Jacobs was going against this and going against Moses, who was arguably the most powerful man in the city at the time, he'd outlasted mayors from, you know, his first mayor was Fiorello LaGuardia in the, you know, he started with LaGuardia and Roosevelt in the 30s. And by, by this point, we were up to what, John Lindsay? Or uh, a beam? Yeah, Mayor Lindsay was in the sixties. Yeah. yeah, Lindsay. Lindsay was mayor when uh, Lindsay was mayor in sixty eight. So yeah, because he was. Yeah, he was. He was he, mayor in April sixty. With, avoid, with avoiding the same scale of rioting in New York that happened elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so you know he he'd gone all the way from LaGuardia to to a beam at this point. Yeah. And um, so Jane Jacobs was going against him. Now, so dear listeners, why are we taking you on this uh, historical discursive on? Uh, uh, you know, the mayoralty of New York City and uh, urban design and transportation planning in New York. Well, there's a reason. Because there's new, uh, well, not a Robert Moses exactly, but there's a new um, new class of, uh, of, of crazy rich person who, who believes themselves entitled to be social engineer. Yeah, in the and person of Elon Musk, of, of Elon Musk in particular, and of course the the whole valley elite in general. Exactly. So Elon Musk, or uh, elongated muskrat, as he agreed to uh, have himself be called, um, <clears throat> that was a legitimate tweet of his. I did not make that up. Um, you know, he started this thing called the Boring Company, which is a, actually a you know kind of a nice play on words because it was originally for uh, tunnel boring machines, but. He has, you know, in classical uh, Musk-esque style, scaled up the concept of the company, not just to making tunneling machines more cheaply, but reinventing transportation as a totality. By tunneling more? By tunneling more and by creating pod-like contraptions for moving people around and dropping them off at places and reinventing uh, urban transportation to the point where all you have to do is walk outside your residence your, you know, Musk-created or Bezos-created residence, presumably, and uh, snap your fingers and some sort of transport pod will arrive and whisk you off to your destination. Uber for subways, except you don't have to deal with other people. Exactly. And, you know, to the extent that will any of these visions actually be made manifest, I really doubt it. Um, you know, I think we're, we're talking a lot about Musk right now because he's at what will retrospectively be seen as the apex of his uh, influence rather than on the climb up to it. Um, so I, I doubt willing. that... Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. Yeah. Uh, but to the extent that, you know, someone like Musk in particular, who has complained about subways, who doesn't like subways, who doesn't like... Who who sees the sort of uh, manifold details of urban and civic transportation, because it's, it's important to add that, that other term to it, right? It's civic transportation. Right. All right, because that that adds a a valence. Uh, it, it it adds a moral dimension to it. It's it's not just moving people around in defined space. It is a a, a civil act. Yeah, the, there's the like these you know sub uh, subways, buses, etc. That look, I get that the subway is gross. Um, I get that like no one ever wants to ride the bus anywhere. But what Musk is pro- proposing is basically something that seeks to undermine the whole idea that part of living in a society is living life in common and that 
within your particular locale, part of the government's job is, in fact, to provide for that common life in such a way as to make it in some way better, or at least in some way easier. Like and, for and, and and I would I, I would expand on that I, with, without di- disagreeing with anything that you said. It's a, not 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 just that it is the job of the state, the government, whatever, however you want to describe it, to make it better, but that it is to make it better in a way that is equivalently better for everyone, independent of anything about you, and I- equivalently accessible to everyone. Right. And because like, and and, and be equivalently real. enjoyed people, by everyone. People can already get personal transport. That's what owning a car is for. That's what taking taxis are for. Yeah. The thing is, not everyone can afford that, but, and, and frankly, not enough, like, the subway isn't broadly affordable enough as it is, but... Yeah. Separate question, but, yeah, yeah. It's the best we can do, I think. Yeah. I mean, and not just the subway, but, like, just the MTA system in general, inclusive of buses, et cetera. Sure. Um, that is, I think, a better and more virtuous attempt at, um, to to use the most industrial terms, moving people. Yeah. Um, yeah. That the, the amount of money that would allegedly be or would postulatedly be spent on implementing any one of his plans for this automated transport gobbledygook. Which would, of course, also just lead to the personal enrichment of one or at most a very few people. Yeah. Rather than, you know, the workers who build the thing, the people who run the thing... And the subsidies for the people who enjoy the thing, yeah. and, and 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 this is the thing that, that I keep coming back to. That is, you know, in addition to, to all of the engineering considerations and just the like, what moves people faster, better? Which, anyway, I think a subway and bus system probably does. Like, there is a an important civic virtue in taking the subway, in being on the bus, in just being in public transit space, because you know it fosters people being civic inhabitants. Yeah, and being and simply being in the same place. Yeah. Regularly. Right? In lots of different conditions. With people who are in lots of different conditions. Like sometimes you're tired and somebody else is having a good day and maybe that cheers you up. And sometimes it's the reverse. Or sometimes you're you're drunk and someone helps you up. And uh, or sometimes there's some weird guy yelling in Arabic on the train. Like it was happening yesterday with, with me and like whatever. And sure, there are the public masturbators. That is a problem. It happens <laughs> occasionally. I think in my entire 34 years in New York City, I think I've seen that once. But, yeah. and sure, but even are, that yeah. has a virtue. <laughs> I'm not going to jump on the pro-public jerking it platform, but... <laughs> um, yeah, like, even despite those flaws, I think that... I think that there are a large number of reasons why it's very important to have a civically funded, not-for-profit system of getting people where they need to go. Yeah. I mean, you know... And that there, the, an important part of that is that it's not just like... Uh, one, a mechanism run for private profit... Or a mechanism that reduces the user to a private individual. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much common consent right now that the MTA, if not exactly being in crisis, is certainly in, it's in a tough spot right now. And it, and it needs some fixing. But even in its tough spot, 
It still runs 24 hours a day. It still delivers a service. You know, it can get me from Inwood to the air to JFK for 275, and pretty much more or less reliably on time. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So you know, the the entire discourse that the right has advanced over the last 35, 40 years of you know public services not delivering good value for money has was never right in the first place, and now it, it must absolutely be totally repudiated because. Well, yeah, and I think the thing it's like this whole thing. You don't like the post office? The post office can send a letter from Anchorage to Miami for forty cents. Who else can do that? Yeah. Well, and that's the whole other side of it. It's like the to to take up the mail example. Like, sure, um, maybe maybe UPS or FedEx is more able to get a letter to somewhere else in a day than the post office. Just just by just, just by like using the day as a measure like within know, 24 hours yeah like let's say it needs to happen within 24 hours sure that's more likely to happen with UPS or FedEx than with USPS but think about the difference in price how much is you know how much is it to send a letter across the country using the postal service less than 50 cents it's a matter of cents right mhm mm Overnight shipping with a private, with a private company. It's like twenty five, thirty bucks, I think. It, yeah, something it, like that. Yeah, yeah. it's so like sixty times the price. Exactly, exactly. And so this is the thing that, like, sure, what, what, what the sort of privatization cheerleaders will cite is the, is the fact that it happens in a day. What they won't point to is the fact that. It's so much more expensive and therefore so much less accessible to so many people. Yep. Because, of course, it doesn't, they don't care about people in general. They care about the people that can afford it because those are the people that are driving profits. And that's all they care about. They don't actually care about getting services to the largest number of people for the lowest cost. No. Which. Gets back to you know. Let, let's re rewind it to to our final point just once before we we wrap up here because I think we're pretty much at the end of our time. Um, you know, that's not Elon Musk doesn't care about delivering the best municipal transport to the largest number of people with the lowest cost, right? Because the the proposal that he put together doesn't tackle any of those things. It tackles the idea of wouldn't it be nice if you, as someone with access to this thing, could be able to step outside your residence, snap your fingers, and have a random transport pod arrive and whisk you off to your destination by yourself or with your own few guests and not have to interact with anybody and not worry about anything else. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one of the other weird things about it, just thinking symbolically, is that, uh, assuming that this is like a, a new tunnel system, right, that it even makes you have to see less people than you would have to riding a cab. Yep. Yeah, there's not even a driver because it's... Right. <laughs> well, and you don't have to look at people on the street. It's just... I mean, it's so hyper-modern in that it like, is so over-committed to the project of using technology to turn us into these completely isolated consumers who have only an internal world. Well, 
here in New York City, we remain committed to the external world, and uh, looking out at that external world, it is still not dark. Even though it is time to say goodbye, uh, dear audience. All right. Well, from not quite nighttime, from not seeing you. Yep. Absolutely. Next time.